Okay, you ready, AP? Ready when you are. Let's lay this baby down. Lofty, you on the guitar, mate. You right, Scope? Yep, standing by. Bertie, you on the bass? Yep, ready to go. All right, here we go then. One, two, three, four. Just two good old boys. Two good old boys. Never meeting a harm. Before he never saw the hand, no hair since the day they was born. Straighten the curves. Straighten the curves. Flatten the heels. The coffee might get him, but the Lord never will. For casting away the only way they know how. With a little more mojo than the Lord will allow. Hey everybody, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. (laughs) I tell you what, there aren't many podcasts in the world where they would have their own theme song recorded (laughs) in the studio. A bit of Dukes of Hazard. How Uh, much fun was that? I mean, honestly, it, it is... Michael Gervais said this when he was on our show. Is that really is the work that's gone into that song as a theme song for our show? Really is world class. Well done to everybody involved mm. in the show. Very very good. Welcome everybody. That's our new theme song. We're going to run with that for a while. A bit of fun putting it together, and uh, just two good old boys uh, helping get the mojo working. If you're new to the show. What do we do here at the Mojo Radio Show? We just find interesting people and we sit with them each week. We talk about what they've done, how they do it, their opinions, their tips. And it could be in sport or, as it is today, business, social enterprise, science, uh, which about technology, whatever, psychology. We just sit, we talk, we take their good stuff. And if it can help us get our mojo working in or out of work, then we're all in. And as the lyrics in the jingle say, never meaning no harm, but if you listen to us for too long, God knows what damage we might do. (laughs) Goodness knows. And uh, can't understand why they can't get their face on TV. How true is that? (laughs) Two good old boys. If you haven't hit the subscription button yet, do yourself a favour. If you do that, what it means is for our show, or in fact any show, uh, you don't miss any shows and you won't miss the gold. And I can promise you there are some cracking guests coming up into the future. You won't want to miss the gold. And rather than another thing on your to-do list, you have to remember to download shows. You open up your app, it's there. So hit the subscription button. Now, before we start the show, I've got a pop quiz for everybody here in the studio. So you can all play this, boys. The Mojo Radio Show. Pop quiz, hot shot. Here's my thought. 
Last week, we had a guest from Canada called Stan Peak. Remember, everybody remembers Stan Peak, right? Yeah, yeah. Top show, loved the stuff he talked about with leadership. He was a cool guy and he dropped this classic line and the line was, hold my beer and watch this. <laughs> and so I was actually out with my horse and I was doing some pondering during the week and I thought another great line that I remember from the show was Marie Gromberg, who's the climber who had just crested Mount Everest when she came onto our show and her line was, gratitude is the super highway to happiness. And I thought, you know, we've had some cracking one-liners, many of which are up on the studio walls here you can see. So to start the show, what I would like very quickly is to whip around the room into the booth and back. What's the great line that you remember from our show? We're in our fifth season. What's a great quote you remember from one of our guests? AP? Unfortunately, I don't really have one that I can quote from the show, but I do have a quote that I kind of live by. You must put your head in the lion's mouth if you wish the performance to be a success. And the other one I kind of like too is uh, never submit to failure. And on that philosophical note, carry on, chaps. For me, uh, the one I, well, the one I use the most came from Tate Fletcher, The World's on Fire. I knew you'd say that. It's just, it's you are just so a, predictable. It's just a cracking line you are and I so use it constantly. I constantly use it. So I, I, how can I say anything else? This is Tate Fletcher, Cage Fighter. Listen to Mojo Radio Show or I'll be coming to see you. All right, who are we talking to this week? So our guest this week, and what's really interesting is the last couple of weeks I've been inundated with books, which I'm loving, and we are having people from all quarters of the world send us books to say, hey, here's my new gig, have a read, love to come on your show. And I have a backlog, which is really good, but I'm working my way through them. And this book is a great example. That's called Projectify. I met Jeff at a gig I did some time ago and he told me he was writing a book and then true to his word, he said, I'll send you a copy. And having read the book, it's, it's a very interesting book on strategy. And the book itself is about how we use projects to actually bring strategies to life. And I wanted to get Jeff on the show because I was interested in the whole project side. And having read the book, it's not just about using projects as in projectify your business. But I really want to dig into strategies and why why we aren't actually making our strategies come to life and how, how many strategies die on the vine. Jeff Shuizu is a thought leader on the power of having a project mindset. Now, what that means is how do you use traditional project management processes and techniques to bring the best out of your team to get, in his words, exceptional outcomes for the business. In my terms, how you get stuff done. I was really interested in Jeff's take on strategy and why we fail so often to make strategies happen. It's a really interesting read. Jeff's a good guy. And thankfully, he agreed to come on the show. So, Jeff, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, Jeff, put people in the picture. When somebody walks up to you and says, hey, what do you do? How do you like to reply? More often than not, I keep it pretty simple and say that I have a consulting practice that helps businesses more effectively achieve their strategic goals. But my real passion is around creating exceptional teams teams that, that really get stuff done in the vernacular of the show, really 
create workplaces that have their mojo working. So when I'm not in an elevator or I'm not talking to somebody next to me on a plane or I'm not a barbecue where people are just making small talk, what I like to say is that through speaking, writing, consulting, I help organizations become exceptional by creating exceptional workplaces. And I use projects to do that. Well, good, because we're in the right place then. Uh, Now, question for you. What were the observations that you made that led you to write your book? When I started my practice, I was in the space of doing projects better. So large capital projects primarily, but um, how how do we actually get better at at doing them successfully? Because the failure rate is is quite shocking, actually. And um, that sort of leads you down the path of, okay, if we're going to do that, we need to rethink the way we do business. And so I got involved in a number of initiatives with organizations, construction organizations, that um, said, yeah, we want to do some things differently. So we'd like to bring you in and start talking about how we roll that into our overall strategic thinking. And what I came to realize very, very quickly was that for project organizations, they didn't bring a project mindset to the way that they were trying to change their strategy. And um, so that's, that started to suggest to me that, hold on a second, there, you're you're, you're never going to be successful if you don't actually um, approach this thing in a structured way because, quite frankly, your, your people need structure to, to come on board, to be, become engaged in what you're trying to, to do, and, and ultimately you want them to be motivated to drive it forward. So, so it was out of that world of how do, how do we actually get project organizations using a project mindset to implement strategy that I, I started to see that there's a, there's a bigger game to be played here because um, most organizations aren't very successful at taking strategic thinking, strategic planning, and translated it into action and activity. And in today's business world, you, you absolutely have to be able to execute strategically because things are changing and moving too, too fast not to adapt and adjust to what's happening around you. And it's interesting because one of the stats in the book, which I think will be frightening for any business leader, is that 63 to 90% of strategic plans fail. Now, that was something that I th- think was referenced to McKinsey, if my memory serves me correctly. And it, the other thing is that we had, you know, in our early days of the show, probably in season one or season two, we had Dr. Adam Fraser on the show and he quoted the same things. I distinctly remember him saying 63% of strategies never see the light of day they fail. So that I've got this cross reference now, which I'm feeling pretty good about. Mm-hmm. What's what's the better option? Why why is it failing? Because I, I see a lot, and the thing is, I I know I sit through these meetings, and I did one not so long ago with a board, and a guy from Accenture facilitated this two days, and they're two days of my life I'll never get back again. <laughs> I, I honestly, Jeff, I knew it was going nowhere. It came out with nothing. Nothing has happened. Yet this guy would go in and charge huge amounts of money. And it was just, it was nothing. It was, and I sat there shaking my head going, but every time you brought it, where is this going? What, what, what's going to come? As a system, it's a process. Mm. What, where is all this going wrong? Well, I think it, it, it went wrong at the turn of the 20th century, but fun, <laughs> fun, <laughs> unfortunately, um, but un, unfortunately, what 
has happened over the course of the 20th century is that we we started to bring a scientific approach to the way we managed the project. Scientific management was the terminology. Frederick Taylor was the earliest proponent of it, wrote a book on it. Um, and, and that was fine in a post-industrial revolution age where you suddenly had large manufacturing organizations where people just needed to do what they were told. But we don't live in that that world anymore. Those most businesses have either automated or sent the jobs where people don't need to think to to other places. So what what we haven't actually kept up with is the evolution of business in the way we've evolved strategy. And in fact, strategy came out of a military um, tradition, if you will. But what the military tradition always understood is that st- strategy isn't static. Um, Dwight David Eisenhower famously said, plans are worthless, but planning is essential. Um, and so where we've gone wrong is when we started to codify it, when we started to place it into process, when we started to teach it in universities, which began in the 1940s and 50s, and ultimately strategic planning was a part of what most large businesses did in the 60s. Um, what, what we believed at that time is they were thinkers and doers, and we're gonna, the thinkers are going to think about what the strategic plan will be, and we're going to tell the doers what that they need to accomplish. And somehow, miraculously, those two things are going to come together. So where, where this is all going wrong is it's now even more complicated um, because you have multiple levels of, and layers of strategy happening at any given time within large organizations and even medium-sized organizations because different parts of your organization have a different um, strategic focus, if you will. And so the easy bit is to deal with the planning bit. And we're all busy. We're all attention limited. So organizations feel good about themselves when they develop a plan. But plans are worthless. <laughs> it's the idea of planning and planning based on feedback from tactical action. Are we, are we actually taking the, this planning thinking into the operational environment and testing it? Um, testing it with the people that are going to implement it, testing it with the customers that are going to be the recipient of it or the um, shareholders or or, um, uh, suppliers or whomever it it ends up affecting and um, seeing whether the plan actually has legs in reality. And more, more importantly, recognizing that we have stretched our operational capacity to its limit, generally speaking, in our businesses. So you, so you, so you have to do it in, in a very incremental way. You can't suddenly, and, and, and much of the big strategic execution work that's done is around large transformational change projects. And not surprisingly, large transformational change projects have about the same success rate as executing a strategic plan, and it's and it's because you're you're actually asking your your organization to do something it's not very well suited to do, create capacity to do things other than day to day operations, um, take on work that people aren't skilled at and and don't necessarily have the skills to take on, and oh by the way, get your managers to go lead that when in fact they're 
their expertise from a management perspective or even from a leadership perspective is in another place. It's technical or it's it's people management as opposed to um, execution management, more in my terminologies, and project management. So, so we don't create strategies for how to implement the strategy. There is no strategy for how we're going to take this, this plan, these goals, these objectives, and turn them into something that we're doing. And more importantly, something that all of our people are doing. And so you, you would have seen in those two-day exercises that there'll be some part of the agenda that says, okay, now we're going to talk about how we're going to go communicate um, what we've just talked about. And so there, you know, oftentimes there, there are communication plans around the plan, but there's no execution plan around the plan. And so the, fundamentally where we're going wrong is, is that we don't um, recognize that the plan is only as good as the next steps you take in implementing it. And so you need something that takes those steps back and brings it back into the plan. And, and so that you readjust, re, reprioritize and continue to move forward. And um, I think that's the, the most fundamental um, issue that we have with the way we, we approach strategy and the way we implement strategy. And then, of course, above and beyond that, it's, it's the recognition that as soon as we tar- start taking those steps into the implementation side, uncertainty starts to creep in. Now, all of a sudden, we can't just plan what we're going to do. We have to take account for what's going to be the reaction to what we do. Is the market going to be respond the way we think it will respond? Are our customers going to respond? Are people um, going to re- respond in terms of taking these, this high-level thinking and translating it into on-the-ground stuff that we do? That's gold. You know what that is, Gaz? That's strategic gold. Oh, straight out of the box. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm going to drop a few names here because, honestly, Jeff, I've got so much. I could spend a week talking to you about this because this is so relevant to the amount of energy, time, money and mojo that is wasted in sessions in corporate world that I see. And I just see it so often. And the names are going to drop. So let's, I'm going to go back a step. You said Eisenhower said plans are useless planning is invaluable. And I get that. And that I agree with because my view is that what I see is that people spend these day, two day, three day retreats, get all this flip chart paper, type it up. Here's our strategic plan for the next 12 months and great. And then I know within two months time, that thing is dead on the vine. So my question is, how do we, how do we keep our plans dynamic so that we actually execute. And the second name I'll drop is, is this where things like the Rockefeller process, which Vern Harnish wrote about in his books and people can find it online, which is about being an agile workplace, daily catch-ups, weekly catch-ups to execute, where are we at? What resources do you need? Do you have, what, what do you need from me? Go get some. If I put those two things together, is that kind of where you believe leadership should be, that you build a plan, but then you need to have a strategy to execute where you bring these things together like the Rockefeller principles? Is that kind of where you're thinking? So I think what you've touched on are the two pieces of a three-pronged approach. So you, you need to understand purpose, I'll call it. So 
what what represents strategic value, what represents the approach that we're going to um, use to obtain that strategic value, and why are we doing? What's what is it we want to be for our customers? And and that has to be something that is well understood, well thought out, not necessarily well wordsmithed in a interminable session where we go through mission and vision, but something that your people can connect to. And you need a framework for taking that and doing something with it. But the third piece that I think is is probably the most important is actually starting to make it something that your people are doing. And that it's what I call creating empowered teams and the most effective um, way of creating those sorts of empowered teams is, is something that one of your guests talked about, Chris Cell, and that's this idea of a team of teams. So distribute what I call distributed um, planning and control of your strategic activities. So start to give the execution of strategy over to your people, but do that within a context of let's get them doing the most important things that we have the capacity to do. So one of one of the challenges you have with agile bringing agile principles to strategy and businesses, and many businesses have, have, have hit upon this, if you will, or jumped over it or ran into it, as the case may be, um, is this idea: okay, we're, we're going we're to now apply this to a lot of things, and surely that'll make a lot of things happen. We'll complete a lot of these these strategic initiatives that we start. Um, but you still run up against the problem of capacity. So let's let's start to triage down the number of things that we're asking our people to do. Be very, very clear on what objective we want to achieve and how it is prioritized in our high-level purpose and strategy. Um, and then give them what they need to do that. And, and do it in a way that, that they feel empowered, that... that um, motivation for moving it forward is intrinsic as opposed to I'm going to measure how well you're executing this particular project and flog you if you're not doing well and give you a, a reward if, if you do well. So it's, um, it's, a, it's a three-pronged approach. And I think when you start getting those three things happening, you then you're starting to build a uh, strategic performance culture, which is what you need if you're going to be an adaptable organization. It can't simply be something that you drive from the top. It, it is, as I describe it, and, and, and the team of teams approach would, would suggest, it's something that you lead from the center, but, but then is um, operationalized from the edge of the organization. So let's dig into that because um, it's interesting. You're talking about the Navy SEAL, Chris Fussell, who was on our show, episode 151 of the Mojo Radio Show. Fantastic <coughs> interview. Now, Chris served as the aide-de-camp to General Stan McChrystal and they served over in Ramadi. They now work for the McChrystal Group and mm -hmm. they wrote... To your point, team of teams, and I think more recently, one team. Yeah. Now, you actually met Chris, so we've got a bit of Navy SEAL envy here. You actually met Chris <laughs> in um, 2014 in San Francisco, mm -hmm. and they talked about, you know, these leadership principles and team of teams they employed during the Iraq war. From that meeting and from seeing and hearing these guys, 
What do you remember? What was your biggest takeout? It was a this sort of serendipitous um, intersection of things because I had, to that point in my practice, I'd really been focused on process. Process is the way to, to start to reshape the way we um, think about work and, and bring new adaptive approaches to the workplace. Um, but was starting to get this sense that oh, um, there's a missing piece here, and, and it's the people piece. You know, how how do we actually start to in, engage people by giving giving them something to be engaged in, and not constantly um, manage their resistance? And um, so I'd done a little bit of um, research work, and and heard. Uh, um, a corporate anthropologist by the name of Michael Henderson speak, and he talked about this idea of um, triangles versus circles and how the typical corporate structure, if you ask people to describe it in a geometric shape, is a triangle. Um, and But if you actually look at tribal cultures it's and ask them to describe how they, their tribe works, they'll describe a flat circle. And in the corporate world, you have um, 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. In the tribal world, you have 90% of the people doing 100% of the work, or they don't survive. And um, the I went to the Project Production Institute Symposium in San Francisco, um, and um, Chris and General McChrystal's chief of staff in, in Ramadi um, were speaking, and they. this was before the team of teams te- terminology, but they said, you know, we were losing the war. And, and as you can imagine, we had this massive organization that we were trying to manage, multiple countries with multiple um, uh, sec- sectors of the military involved, and he showed this org chart that was um, bigger than any org chart you've ever seen. It was, and, but it was this triangle on steroids. And he said, what we actually recognized we needed to do is we needed to be more like our enemy that was defeating us. We needed, we needed to be nimbler. We needed to be more technologically savvy. And we needed to emulate what small teams did which were more successful than these large um, cumbersome organizations. And then he drew sort of a network diagram that miraculously looked like a flat circle. And at the center of that circle were, were the uh, joint, joint command, General McChrystal and, and his team. And you know, he, he talked about the need for us to be there to support and enable people. And what struck me in that moment is if the military, which is – really the blueprint for the modern business operational structure could recognize in a combat situation the need to move to more distributed planning and control, the need to more empower the teams on the ground to take control of their their own activities in service of a, of a higher level strategy, then surely any organization can take on that challenge because the stakes aren't nearly as high, the complexity is not nearly as great. So the takeaway for me is we fundamentally we're, we're approaching this idea of how to better utilize our people, how to better tap into their skills and experience by the way we operationalize them. That we believe that a reporting hierarchy should be mirrored in the way we operationalize our people. So say you move from a triangle to the circle. 
And I think the majority of people, if they drew their org chart, would draw a triangle. No question. And there's probably when you, the further you move down that triangle to speak to the teams themselves, they would feel as though they're in a triangle at a very distinct point. Say there is somebody listening to this who runs an organisation who buys into it, uh, buys into a team of teams, which was terribly successful up against a fast-moving and very agile Al-Qaeda. They want to move to this circle principle the tribes talk of. If I'm a leader in the centre of that circle, how do I act, Jeff? Like, tell me... Tell me specific things that I would do if I'm in the centre of that circle and I want this to be the structure, the team of teams, projectifying what I'm doing. What do I do on a daily basis? How do I check in? How would that feel? What would I be doing? Fundamental um, responsibility in that sort of a leadership role is to support and enable those teams to be successful. It is also, of course making sure that they continue to serve the strategic objectives that you want them to serve. So there's guidance involved as well. So first, first and foremost, give them some freedom. Give them the freedom to fail. Give them the freedom to self-determine how they're going to go about things. Because as, as leaders, and I led large organizations for a number of years, you get in your mind, this is how I want things done. And as soon as you start doing that, you, you start disempowering your people. Okay, you tell me what you want me to do, and I'll go try and do it and probably emulate you badly. But give them, empower them to decide how they're going to go about tackling their mission, to use the military <laughs> analogy. Um, so give them freedom. There's freedom to fail. You you, as, as long as you're having a go, that you're in service of what we're trying to accomplish, if it doesn't work out, then we learn something from that. So it's not, it's not all about achieving a result. It is, it is about the, the process. Give them, give them that, that freedom. Give them that freedom to, um, to uh, um, explore. Given you know, psychological safety, which is another thing that I talk about in the book, the the ability to to um, ask questions that traditionally don't get asked. Why do we always do things this way? So that's one thing. Um, the other thing is it's more about support than it is about control. So how can I help you to be successful at what we? what you have committed to deliver for the organization. How to, and support comes in a lot of different, different ways. It's not just, let me give you what you need. It's also being something for the team in the face of, of the rest of the organization. So promoting what they're doing, their good work, um, recognizing that, that good work when oftentimes doing strategic things take them out of the organizational or the operational frame. So hold on a second, they, they are adding value to the business in, in this work that they're doing. So providing that, that support, um, not direction. And, and to do that, you need to connect with them. You need to understand what it is they're actually doing and not simply look at metrics. Okay, this is what a, the results, um, KPIs, metrics reports telling me, and if those numbers aren't the numbers I want to see, then I'm... I'm going to use that to make judgments about the team. You actually need to connect at a level of 
what's happening, what's what's working for you, what's not working for you. The next the next piece is really around creating a framework where they can be successful. Don't micromanage the way they go about doing their work, but create a framework where their contribution is their knowledge and experience, not them learning how to create a project management system, not them learning how to create communication protocols for the organization, create that framework where they can step into it and um, be successful using the skills that most of your people will have. And most of those skills aren't, how do I do projects successfully? And then, and then, and then finally, it's, it's constantly keeping the connection between purpose and what you're doing, constantly revisiting that, that connection um, and, you, and making it a two-way connection. So as we do um, projects, what is that telling us about our strategy? And conversely, when we create strategy, what is that strategy telling us is the most important things to be working on? So we give the people the ability um, to have meaningful purpose in what they're doing. There's create that hard, hard wire between this is what we're trying to accomplish as a business, and this is how what you're doing on this project is um, moving that strategic agenda forward. Because then people get progress. They start to see progress, and progress is the number one motivator for people in the workplace. Because typically the strategic plan is, is held tightly by the senior leadership team or, mm. in a lot of cases, the board and... They think their job is to monitor and measure, right? So here are the certain KPIs, they watch and they observe, but they typically don't lead the project. So is what we're talking about here, this move that the military are doing from command and control, which is the old school way that I think you've referenced, now into a new way of looking at it called decentralised command that you hear a lot of the SEALs talk about where you do what's the mission how do we operate? What are our values? Here's the outcome expected. What do you need from me? Do you have the resources? Go after it. Is that kind of where you're now seeing it change to, Jeff? Is that kind of what we're talking about here? Absolutely. And it's, you know, this isn't something that happened in an armed conflict in one place in the world. And, and, and it's the idea is now let's make that spread. So the largest organizations in the world are starting to do this. So, you know, Google very much is, is of this mindset. We, we have reporting structures, but those aren't the way we operate. We operate in teams and we, and we drive our strategy forward through projects. Um, so the, the largest, most successful organizations in the world are, are, have twigged to this. Um, and interestingly enough, they're also the organizations that are that are driving change in their marketplaces as, a, as opposed to responding to change. And when you say people in the marketplace, my understanding is there are, uh, whether you go Apple, uh, Google, uh, Airbnb, 3M, Southwest Airlines, are brands that you've, you've talked about, mm-hmm. they're all going into project-driven ways of operations. The question I've got, Jeff, from your experience, the research you did for this is, can this run with a remote team? Because at the same time, these guys are all moving to project-driven organizations. The other theme that people like David Heinemir Hansen talks about in his book, Remote, is that 
our workforce is now more productive, more creative, and has more freedom and trust if they're able to not have to go to an office every day and check in command and control, but they are decentralized. Have you witnessed this happening to a remote workforce? Most of the workforces that I deal with aren't what we would traditionally call remote workforces, but a number of them are um, widely dispersed workforces. And, and so they require remote ways of working, if that's this subtle distinction makes, makes sense. So um, they, they actually have on the, on the ground, have to be at work um, responsibilities, but you have, you have to interact in remote ways. And there it works extremely well, I believe, if you create touch points at certain times, because as humans, <laughs> we, we, we like to come together as a tribe. We, we like to be across the table from one another. We, we like to experience that, that um, human interaction. So if you cr- as long as you create touch points for that sort of interaction and specific types of planning, um, then I think you can make it work very, very effectively, either with a remote workforce in, in I suppose, the, the modern um, lexicon, or a widely dispersed workforce that struggles to come together in, uh, um, in the same place on a regular basis. So yes, very, very much so, and, and, and the technology helps us do that. Um, so it's, it's then, then you start using the technology um, to enable what you're trying to do as opposed to technology is, is the way we're going to be more successful and now everybody fit in around this new system we bought. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point because uh, David Heinemeyer Hansen, who is going to be a guest on the show in a couple of weeks' time, who started Basecamp for 38 Signals mm-hmm. and wrote Rework and Remote, he said mm-hmm. the same thing. And he finds that at Basecamp, although they have a very remote team, they do bring themselves together every quarter or half to spend three or four days together just to get that humanisation and to make sure they're on track with their why, understanding the dream, dealing with issues, setting a strategy, talking and just being human. So he, he's exactly in the same place as you in terms of how to do it with, let's call it dispersed teams or remote teams. Yep, yep. And, and Jason Fried, his, part, his partner, yes. writes quite, quite uh, um, shall we say, robustly about this idea of when, you, when you're going to take people's time up to be synchronous in the way you interact as opposed to asynchronous, um, then be intentional about it. Do, do it for the human need that it that it satisfies as opposed to some um, larger management need. I want everybody in, in, in the room with me because that makes me feel better about being a manager. <laughs> <laughs> you, um, this is so true. You spoke a moment ago about psychological safety. I just want to camp there for a second. And you referenced mm-hmm. Amy Edmondson, who's That's a Harvard yeah. researcher who talked about it. Just expand on it for us, Jeff. What is psychological safety? What is it and how do we bring it into our team? My introduction to it came when um, through some readings I did around um, Project Aristotle, which is something that Google undertook to understand how to, 
how do we get the best out of our teams? How do, how do we create teams that are the most successful in delivering the outcomes that they're trying to, to deliver? And um, it, it wasn't in any of the places, once they did this research, it wasn't in any of the places they expected it to be. What they, what they found in their own experience when they compared it to the research and different thought leaders' um, perspectives was this idea of the psychological safety of the people within a team, their, the ability to feel comfortable in the interactions, the, the ability to feel comfortable in challenging the status quo, the, the ability to um, ask, quote unquote, the, the dumb question with, without reprisal, with, without um, um, being shut down in, 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 in different, many different sorts of human ways um, was one of the keys to the way the best teams perform. And um, so Amy Edmondson talks about um, psychological safety is this idea of creating a space where nothing is sacred, where questions can be asked. And when you start to pair that up, with an accountability slash motivational world where people start to see themselves as, as highly accountable and accountability from an empowered perspective as opposed to accountability from a um, blame perspective, if that, that makes some sense. Um, when you start to bring high levels of psychological safety and, and, and a high level of accountability together, that's when you create a learning environment, what she calls a learning zone. And um, so there's these when these two things come together, um, you start to create this environment where people don't just ask the dumb questions. They ask the really hard questions Mm -hmm. and 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 are motivated to go and explore where the answers might be. And it's and it's out of that sort of um, interaction that. That's where you want your strategy to be. That's where you want your future, future focus to be. Um, where where might we go, or might we sh- why should we go into the into the future to be the best version of, of our organization to to fulfill our purpose? Those kinds of things. And um, so that you know, and and Amy Edmondson talks about well, you know, how do you, how you create that environment from a leadership perspective, and it's it's literally mirror the the sort of things that you want out of your people, and it's show vulnerability, ask questions yourself as opposed to create direction. Um, so that's how you start to build the psychological safety, and and once they people feel safe um, with their leaders, then they start to feel safe with each other. And when they start to feel safe with each other, that's when they start to, to drill in and, and you start to drive that sort of in, intrinsic motivation, that empowerment that, that makes them want to go find um, the hard, the answers to the hard questions. That's psychological gold. Oh, I, mean, no I mean, dumb questions and the hard questions. I mean, that's, that's, that's good. People don't ask the hard questions. That's... Uh, Goes back to a lot of Kel Newport stuff where he says, you know, talks about focus being the new IQ and the thing he said on the show was taking the time to sit and really think hard. And to think hard, you need to ask the hard questions. That's good. That's gold. Now, I just want to um, ask you something. I had an interview recently with uh, Reed Hastings from Netflix and he said back in the 90s, 
they were still doing mail-out video or DVD, yet he saw that the future was going to be in the internet. This is back in the mid-90s, so the internet wasn't even really a thing, but he knew if it was to become a thing, that getting it into the home via cabling and doing the subscription thing and digital internet was going to be the future, so they started investing in it, which I thought was an incredible piece of insight. And his competition at the time wasn't the other people doing mail-outs or DVDs or videos and stuff. His competition was this new disruptive technology. And it seems that a lot of strategies today are based on today's competitors, like what's happening in our market today, who is doing what. Yet in the book, you make an interesting point that the most effective strategies are actually about doing what Netflix did, is about preparing and adapting the business for the change that's about to come. <clears throat> Just talk to us about your observations on that. Just about every business book written at the moment talks about how the pace of change is greater than it's ever been. And then if you write about how it's not and try to prove that. But the, what is certainly true is the implications of change are greater than they have ever been. So... You know, back in the mid-90s, the Internet's coming. Once the Internet came, people had time to catch up to it. The, the ability to say, oh, there's, there's my competitor using, using the Internet. I, I can actually, um, you know, do what he's doing with enough time and enough, enough investment. What's, what's happening now is that when change happens, it be, it's become much more pervasive than it was um, in, in earlier, earlier decades, we'll say. And, and so, and that combined with the speed of that change means that you can fall behind very, very quickly and into irrelevance or extinction if, if you don't paddle pretty damn hard to catch the wave. And so one of the, one of the things that we as organizations, as leaders and organizations don't do as effectively as, as we need to is recognize that part of our job in leading is to start to understand where change may be coming from, that our, our competitors may not be the competitors we think they are, and that probably the greatest risk to our business is the status quo, the fact that we want to keep doing what we've always done and just make it bigger. And so... If we're, if we're going to be competitive and remain competitive and continue to thrive in, in today's business world, you have to be looking for where might the next change be coming from. And again, it's a, it's a two-sided coin. It can be the change that you can make to shift the industry or the change that might be coming that um, you need to be prepared to um, adapt to and, and move move with as opposed to respond to it once it lands in our lap. It's funny because you talk about this word change and adapting and in the book you said we're actually quite good at change. Like we're okay with change. (laughs) The thing that brings us unstuck is uncertainty. Yes. How does a leader in the centre of the circle bring certainty and confidence to people when going through change? Make them a part of it. It's, 
one one of the things that I've have <laughs> learned in my own work is a, a lot of the work I was doing is quite is quite confronting. It's thinking differently about the way you approach business, and that's confronting for people. And it's not just confronting, as I said, as you say, because we inherently resist change. Because let's let's face it, <laughs> we change on a dime. Um, you know, <laughs> how, how many people had smartphones? Five years ago, and um, you know we we can we can change you know with within the blink of an eye if if we see value in it. Um, it is it is the risk of change that we're we're most confronted by. It's the thing that we resist, and so the way to break down uncertainty isn't to manage people's resistance; it's to make them a part of the change that you're trying to create. And help help them to shape that change. And one of the things that, that I talk about when when I talk about projects, it's not big transformational projects because nobody knows where those are going. You do do change in an in incremental steps so that you test and prepare the business for the change that's coming. You operationalize it so you can iron out the wrinkles and, and people can get comfortable with it. Then you scale it to move it out across your, your entire business. And by that time, you've created this, this groundswell of support within your organization because it's owned by your people. They have ownership over it as opposed to it's something that's dictated to them. Mate, I could speak to you for weeks on this because I have got scenarios I would throw to you, but I won't. You should see his list of questions. He's only like just started. <laughs> no, I'm serious. This is because uh, there's so many things. Because you know, if we had more time, I'd I'd throw. I'm not going to, but I would throw something to you to say, okay, two companies coming together, they're merging, because that's when there's a lot of uncertainty, and that's when there's a lot of change going on. Two companies coming together, we're merging. Two different cultures, two different positionings, two different business names. They're all coming together, and to projectify that seems like a, a smart thing to do. Mm. It's just talking through how you would do that. And, and the reason I find it so fascinating, Jeff, is because something you state in the book, which I think is absolutely true, is we have these retreats, we have these strategic sit-downs, we have get our teams together, we build all these things and we focus on the start. Everyone builds an action plan, first 30 days, here's who's mm. doing what, here's the plan. But we're good at starting, but we're not good at finishing and it seems to me that what you're talking about is if you were in this scenario where you were bringing two teams together or doing something at a larger scale, break it right down, form smaller groups, little task forces that they can take on a project and not just start but know they can actually finish that before they get the next step. Is that kind of what you would do to say to somebody, don't just start it but this is how you actually finish it? Absolutely, because completing work enables new work, and particularly in a strategic sense. So when you, it's, when you complete something, you enable the next step to be taken. And um, in the case, you know, you, use your scenario, bring the people together that were previously in, in divergent company cultures to actually solve that problem. And, and don't start them in, how are we gonna do accounts payable? Start them on something big, something that's important. 
and d- jump jump in with both feet. And I talk about um, Lou Gertzner's uh, approach to turning IBM around, and, and that's exactly what he did. He had a he had an organization that was effectively m- multiple companies op- operating completely autonomously, and in fact, in fact, in competition with each other. So the first thing he did is, okay, we're we're coming together. The, the force fun idea of uh, General McChrystal. I think it's probably at this point we should just. Say hello to Lou, Lou Gertzner from IBM, big big fan of the show. He just, uh, <laughs> if he would just back off a little, he'd, you know, we'd probably get him on the show, but jeez. Yeah, <laughs> so we must touch base. We owe him a telephone call because he did want to have a Dos Equi with us, so we should uh, we should get on to the big Lou, the Gertzner. He's a big Dos Equis fan, I, I've heard. <laughs> now, just... Um, just to finish this up, I like to. Uh, I want to finish with a case study that people can relate to. So I know you work with a diverse group of companies, many of which some of us won't have heard of because of the industries. But a name we all know is Kodak, and you tell this great story in the book about Kodak, about focusing on the now, but not thinking about the what's next. Can you just talk us through that story of what happened to Kodak? Well, the easy version of the of the story is fun, fundamentally they they became an insolvent business um, when first digital technology took over from film technology in terms of photography and, and videography, um, and then from from there when even digital photography went from creating prints to online streaming of, of electronic images. So the easy the easy way to interpret that story is poor Kodak. Technology just swamped and they were disrupted and you know things things went horribly wrong for them. But in, in reality, Kodak actually invented digital photographic technology. And now it was clunky and not marketable and all those kinds of things. But but in I think it was 1975, they, they actually created the first digital camera. So it wasn't like they didn't know about digital technology. Um, and as digital technology started to take hold, what was also true is they were tracking the fact that it was starting to take hold. And they were, they were actually keeping an eye on the uptake of uh, digital photography versus film um, photography and videography and, and where the technology was going and, and what the market shifts were. So they were tracking all this time what, what was going on um, in that piece of the business. And they had the opportunity and, and in fact, made a couple of forays to try to catch that, that wave. Where they fundamentally struggled was to shift the organizational focus away from the fact that they were fundamentally a chemical company. At the end of the day, their their people, their their um, in manufacturing, in sales, in in the management of their organization, saw themselves as people that made chemicals and photographic paper that people use to print photographs and, of course, to, to create um, film and that sort of thing. Um, so where they actually failed was in their ability to make the shift in, in their organization away from a mindset that we're going to continue to do what we've always done. 
when they did try to make that shift, they did it on big transformation on a big transformational scale. So they bet big on large projects, large um, products in in new industries, and in particular in industries that were particularly competitive, so photo, photocopier and and um, those kinds of industries. So in, instead of using small incremental change to bring their organization along to a newer, different future that they were seeing was coming, um, they would make big changes. Those changes would fail financially and they would retreat to core business. So as, as a culture... What people saw was, okay, our jobs are going to be safe because eventually that new venture over there is going to fail and they're going to come back to doing what we've always done. And by, by the time that smartphones came along, the, um, the ability to go into photographic equipment was, was well and truly past them. Their, their, their ability to create um, entrees into other equipment-based um, retail products um, was now so competitive that, that they were never going to create an entry into those markets. And, and eventually the only thing that survived was their chemical company, which they sold off before they went bankrupt. See, there's good learnings for us. I think people need to sit back and say, what business are you really in and what problem are you solving? It's, uh, it's a good case study. I'm, it's gonna, I'm respectful of your time, Jeff. This has been terrific. I could talk to you all day about this stuff because I think you're – bang on with your thoughts and philosophies. I just want to finish with something that people talk or leaders struggle with is team motivation. And you made reference to Dan Pink's three elements to create what they call the type one behavior, which is behaviors that are driven by internal desires. And without elaborating on the whole thing, just with my final question, there's a leader sitting listening to this who goes, man, I just wish my team had were motivated more. I, I feel like I've got to do all the work. I like the idea of this internal motivation for a team. Give me your one hotspot, the bullet point, the laser beam thing out of Dan Pink's work that you've seen and your own observations. What's the critical thing for generating internal desires within the team itself? What we have to do as leaders in business is engage our people by giving them something to be engaged in and then creating the opportunity for them to make meaningful progress against that purposeful engagement. When you, when you start seeing that as the thing that drives people's motivation and um, Teresa Amabile did some research work where she asked leaders, what do you think motivates your people? And, and progress was at the bottom of the list of the five things that she gave them as, as choices. Um, and when she actually did her research work and studied what motivated people, progress was actually at the top of the list. So engage people in work that has purpose. Give them something meaningful to do in a larger context and then give them the ability to create progress against that. Then you start that upward spiral of intrinsic motivation. You start getting people to want to um, take on the empowerment as 
and an accountability. You, you start to um, want to achieve mastery in what you're doing because you want to feel that progress again. More gold. <laughs> Folks, this is a good book, and I and I think Jeff will back me up here. I was a quarter of the way through it, and I like the arguments you put forward. I like the data behind it and the sense you made of where strategy is and where it's not. And I wrote to him. I was in Adelaide doing a speaking gig, and I wrote to him and said, mate, I'm only a quarter of the way through. Can we talk about this on the show? Because I think it's really valuable. And I think the last word goes to the front cover of the book uh, from Seth Godin. Uh, who has been actually has been on us to come on the show, but we just haven't been able to get to him yet. He's probably <laughs> one of the he's the godfather of strategy and learning and marketing and brand. I mean, the guy is a god, not the god, a god. Uh, and he said, strategy is a chance for forward motion. Too many organisations put smarts ahead of action, but Jeff makes it clear that you'll need both. So coming from someone like Seth Godin, that is very high praise for your work, mate. We've been privileged to have you on. I really like the way you look at things. I like the way you articulate it. It's a really worthy read. And, um, mate, thanks for being here. It's been great. Oh, it's been my pleasure. And and I can similarly, as you can imagine, talk for weeks and hours on this one. <laughs> well, it's been great. Uh, now, uh, where do you send people to find the book and to find you, Jeff? Like, where are you? Um, so probably the best place for both of those questions is my website. So um, www.jefffschwizow.com and you can find my book there on the top header um, or slash projectify and then all of the normal uh, retail outlets are um, there to choose from if, if you want to get a copy of the book. And, um, I don't know many. I don't know many Schwezos. What nationality is that? Um, German. I'm told it has Prussian origins, so kind of southeastern Germany, I guess. Um, mm. And uh, but as you can probably hear from my accent, it's a few um, generations ago. That <laughs> 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 but you picked the best country in the world to live in now. I mean, we're calling you in southern Australia, right? Um, oh yeah, Victoria. Yeah, yeah, sorry, <laughs> Southern Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we're, we're such an international show that, you know, Victoria may not mean a lot to people, so I was sort of trying to be a bit more va- bit more oh, open than broad, that. But, broadly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you picked the right country in the world to settle in, though. Oh, we love it here. Absolutely love it here. Right, right about now, we particularly love it. <laughs> yeah, we have a lot of listeners in Germany. Uh, I don't know we have many Prussians. We do have <laughs> listeners in Germany. So hello to all our German, uh, our German mates over there. So um, good on good you, time. Jeff. Good luck with the book. We'll send everybody to your website. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And uh, it's been great, mate. It's nice to catch up. Thank you very much for having me on. I really do appreciate it. It's been fun. The Mojo Radio Show. Simmer down, you noisy, screaming thing. I have to uh, hop into the first task of the day and see how many of those tips I can use today. Yeah, it's actually a really interesting read. It's not a, it's not a long book. It's one of these books which is really good. You can you can whip your way through. But I got to say, the arguments, many of which we talked about in the show, but the arguments at the front of the book of the lack of strategy that ever and how we're good at starting, not good at finishing, how leaders focus on overseeing as opposed to leading and being in the process of getting these things done and being of service. I, I think it's a worthy read. I like Jeff's take on it. It's a very easy read and he's worked with some pretty big companies around the world. So it's a, it's a good one to put on your reading list. Okay. Done. The Mojo Radio Show. It would be remiss of us 
seeing as we opened with a bit of good old boys, uh, I think it'd be remiss of us not to finish with a bit of country. What do you say? Well, you know, we've started country. Let's finish it off. Let's take it home. Well, it's been a while. The show, for anyone who's new to the show, our show is a bit rock. It's a bit country and it's a little gangster at times. <laughs> and this story is from Chris Christopherson. Now, Waylon Jennings did the original Dukes of Hazard track for the TV show. And Waylon Jennings was part of the Highwaymen, which was Chris Christopherson, Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson. Everyone loves a bit of Willie. Ugh. And I saw Chris Christopherson talking at a Johnny Cash tribute recently. And these guys were brothers. And to the point where every time they said hello or goodbye to each other, they said, I love you. And they were very, very tight, been through some very dark times together. But... They were, they were, there was someone who had you, really had your back. And Chris Christopherson said of Johnny Cash, and I thought this was beautiful, he said, John was the North Star and you could guide your ship by it. And I thought, I wonder whether parents could really look in the mirror and go, am I the North Star that my children could guide their ship by? Standards, my beliefs, my philosophies, how I show up, my game. And I thought, imagine going to a business and saying, look at yourself. Are you a leader that all your staff could guide their, guide their ship by? Are you the North Star for your team? The way you front up, your game, the attention you give them, the standards. And I thought, it's actually such a cool line to think about. And, to, and it goes back to what Michael Gervais, one of our great guests of the past, said, game recognises game. And I think the North Star and guiding, being the, being the North Star that people can guide their, guide their ship by is another way of saying game recognises game. So I thought we could play with a bit of Johnny Cash. What do you say? I think we should. So here's Johnny Cash. He's live in Austin, Texas, which is one of the great country songwriting capitals of the world. And this is Johnny Cash doing a song by Chris Christopherson. He'll set it up. So just have a listen to the setup to the song and why why the song is important to him and what we can take from it. So here's Johnny Cash seeing a Chris Christopherson song. See you next week. Proud. Here's a song I like to do. Chris Christopherson wrote it. And it's a song that uh, I like to do it because it makes me reflect back on where I've been. It kind of keeps me off the street. That's important for me to do to look back where I've been because I don't want to lose track of where I am I'm trying to go. Well, I woke up Sunday morning With no way to hold my head That didn't hurt And the beer I had for breakfast Wasn't bad, so I had one more for dessert Then I fumbled in my closet Threw my clothes and found my cleanest dirty shirt Then I washed my face and combed my hair Stumbled down the stairs to meet the day I smoked my mind the night before With cigarettes and songs that I'd been picking But I lit my first and watched a small boy Cussing at a can that he'd been kicking I crossed the empty street Caught the Sunday smell of someone frying chicken 
And it took me back to something That I lost somewhere, somehow along the way On a Sunday morning sidewalk Oh, I'm wishing, Lord, that I was stoned Cause there's something in a Sunday That makes the body feel alone Nothing short of dying Half as lonesome as the sound Of a sleeping city sidewalk Sunday morning coming down In the park I saw a daddy With a laughing little girl That he was swinging And to stop beside a Sunday school Listen to the songs that they were singing I headed down the road Somewhere far away a lonely bell was ringing And it echoed through the canyons Like a disappearing dream of yesterday on a Sunday morning sidewalk I'm wishing, Lord, that I was stoned Cause there's something about a Sunday That'll make your body feel alone Oh, and there ain't nothing short of dying Half as lonesome as the sound of a sleeping city sidewalk Sunday morning coming down The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time.